You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 through 28. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, Who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter said, The Christ of God. And as he strictly, and he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, If anyone would come after me, let them deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, sorry, for whoever will save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the fathers and of the holy angels. But I tell you truly, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word. We love being a people of your word. So we gather under it, we submit to it. Help us to trust what you have given to us in your word. Help us to see and trust more in the living word, the Lord Jesus. And we pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. It's good to see you all this evening. My name is Nathan. I'm one of the pastors here. And Kyle already joked, but man, I, I think I'm disappointed. And I think we're all disappointed that Aaron isn't just up here preaching. Uh, we didn't want to give him a lot to do this last week, but I think we could have just said, open the Bible and talk for 30 minutes and it would have been great. Uh, but here we are. Uh, just me. So sorry about that. Uh, but we are at the end of our first movement through Luke's gospel, getting to this climactic moment here in chapter 9 uh, that we began now at the beginning of the month of December, finally getting to where we are here at this profession of Peter, which is kind of, it's kind of like a, an inverse of like the old comedy trope of a mistaken identity. Whether it's like Bill Murray in The Man Who Knew Too Little or Ned Schneebly in The School of Rock, uh, this story, just like those stories, are compelling because the viewer knows something that the characters in the story don't, other than that main character. In those stories, uh, folks assume that someone is more important than they actually are, of some like innocent misunderstanding at the beginning of the movie or the story, but then the main character just digs himself in deeper and deeper and then now can't tell everyone who he really is. Here, though, something different is happening. Inversely, more like we thought of a couple of weeks ago, uh, of thinking about stories like these of Jesus's identity becoming clearer and clearer. This is a bit more like the old show of The Undercover Boss, where the characters are beginning to figure out what we readers actually know. This isn't a case of mistaken identity, though, like I just said. This is a case of clarifying identity. We've thought a couple of times before in Luke that the old, like when you're at uh, the eye doctor of number one or number two, and with every number one and every number two, the prescription gets a bit clearer and a bit clearer with every passing vignette, with every passing chapter. 
Our prescription, our vision, our clarity of who Jesus is and what he is doing is getting clearer and clearer. And chapter nine is monumental with both where this story is going and how we understand who Jesus is and what he has come for. And so that's exactly how we're going to think about this text tonight in two halves. That of understanding Jesus, which then, when he is understood clearly, then that understanding then leads to following Jesus. So understanding then leads to following Jesus. Understanding Jesus and following Jesus, both for his present-day disciples here in Luke 9, in that present, and for his present-day disciples here in this present, in this room, that we would understand and follow him. So let's get going. Here we go. Understanding Jesus. Let's read verses 18 and 19 again of Luke 9. Luke tells us, now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him, and he asked them, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. All right, so we come onto this scene immediately after what we thought about last week, after the feeding of the 5,000. The disciples here, again, more than the 12, but a larger group of disciples are with or are maybe near Jesus as he was praying alone. And Luke is continually here portraying Jesus as like the ideal human who regularly seeks and prioritizes, prioritizes intimacy with God. Jesus could undoubtedly have so many good one-on-one conversations with all of these disciples around the campfire or something about the, the miraculous feedings that they have just uh, participated in and witnessed in the wilderness. They, are, um, they, they could have talked so much about all of the things that they have seen and experienced, clarified their understanding, just like there are always more books, there are always more articles, there are always more shows, there are always more podcasts that are all really good and all really useful tools to help us know and thank God through. But here, Jesus, again, is praying alone to know God and to love Him to recognize his greatness and goodness and to thank him, to ask for his help and to depend on his grace, to walk by the Spirit intimately with God, to know him, to prioritize intimacy with God, even not in competition with, but sometimes of saying no to good things to say yes to better things. And yet, it's unclear if the disciples are nearby and after praying, Jesus like walks over and then drums up a new conversation. Or if they're all sitting around together and Jesus is just sitting quietly with his eyes closed or something, and then he just looks up. But either way, he initiates this entire thing and he asks them, who do the crowds say that I am? Now, this has been the question of the past two chapters. In 825, the disciples on the boat ask, who then is this that he commands even winds in the water and they obey him? And then in nine, verse 9, the curious Herod asks, Who is this about whom I hear such things? Now, who knows why Jesus asks his disciples this question in this moment after he's praying. But after this string of miraculous revelations of his character and of his power, it seems like he is finally ready to put the fundamental question, the the first and fountainhead question of all of human existence now to them in front of of them on the forefront of their minds and even in their lips when he asks them, who am I? But he doesn't ask them yet, does he? He asks about the crowds. He says, who do they say that I am? He's like asking them, why do you think they keep coming out to me? 
What is it about me? Who do they think that I am? And they, the disciples, maybe each piping up one at a time, say in verse 19, John the Baptist, but others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has arisen. And these are the exact same suggestions uh, that Herod had been considering just last week we saw in verses 7 and 8. We know that from chapter 3, that John the Baptist, or John the Baptizer, was a powerful preacher. He didn't pull any punches with calls for repentance or for reform, and in his heyday, he had become a huge celebrity. He was the first true prophet that Israel had encountered in centuries. And so Herod, and apparently now some in the crowds, assume likely not that Jesus is like a reincarnated John the Baptist who had just been executed by Herod, but that Jesus is carrying on the spirit of the ministry of John. He is a prophetic ministry. Uh, he carries a prophetic ministry of preaching and calls for repentance. So he's carrying on the spirit of John, we might say. He's like John the Baptist, which is true, right? We have seen Jesus preach in this kind of way, similar to John, many times in the book of Luke. But others say that he's Elijah, which again we have also seen. We've seen correlations all over Luke to Jesus as a new Elijah or as Elijah's prophetic protege, Elisha, Elijah or Elisha, a prophet who is driven away from his home in order to preach to and heal outsiders. Jesus all but calls himself Elijah and Elisha in Luke 4. He cleanses leprosy of Gentile officials. He raises children from the dead, all things that Elijah and Elisha have done. Jesus absolutely is replaying a new movement of God to his people, just as Elijah and Elisha did. So this is true as well. He is very much carrying on the ministry of John the Baptist. He very much is a new Elijah. But still others say that one of the prophets of old has arisen. Just after, like, when he raised the man from the dead in chapter 7, the crowds respond by saying, a great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. That's true. This is true of his life and his ministry. A new prophet has arisen way back at the beginning of the Old Testament, in Deuteronomy 18, at the end of Moses' life, just before the people entered the land, which we'll get to next week when we begin our summer walk through the book of Joshua. Moses tells the people this, just before he dies, in Deuteronomy 18, he says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And so we've seen, especially last week, as Jesus feeds a hungry mass of people in the wilderness, a miraculous bread we saw, that Jesus very much is a new Moses, a prophet like Moses, leading his people not out of the slavery of Egypt, but out of the slavery of sin. And so in suggesting all three of these categories, that Jesus is a new John the Baptist, that he is a new Elijah, that he is perhaps one of the prophets of old, all of these things are true. They aren't wrong. Herod and the crowds are not wrong. They're just incomplete. All three of these suggest that Jesus is either a redo or even like a shadow of something good and great that once came before him. Or in the last suggestion, that he's just one of the prophets. He's just one of the many. He is significant. And something legitimately that the crowds longed for and hoped for and prayed for, but ultimately, it's something that we've all seen before. We've got a, like a, a file drawer. We've got a, a file uh, folder in this drawer of our theological imaginations that we can put him in. 
But then, significantly, Jesus said to them, to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And then Peter pulls out a different drawer. It's a file folder that these disciples already have a category for, but it is a big move that Peter pulls out this drawer, pulls out this folder. He tells Jesus that he believes Jesus to be the Christ of God. Christ being the Greek word for the Hebrew word of Messiah. He's saying, we believe you to be the Messiah of God. And what does the Messiah mean? Messiah is just a Hebrew word that just means the anointed one. So he's saying, we believe you to be the anointed one of God. What does that mean? Well, it just means someone who has been anointed with oil, someone who has oil poured all over their face and smeared around. That's a weird thing for Peter to say. We believe you to be the oil-smeared one of God. That's not a weird thing for him to say, though, if he's pulling out the right file folder. In the Old Testament, there are three categories of people who get anointed with oil or who have oil poured all over their heads and smeared about. This process was to separate this person, to set apart this person, to designate a specific person for a specific purpose. And so priests are anointed. Aaron is the very first priest anointed. Oil poured all over him by Moses. Moses smears it everywhere all over him in Leviticus 8. And so Aaron, from that moment on, somewhat regularly gets called the anointed one. Aaron, the Messiah. Kings are also anointed. Samuel anoints Saul, who then rejects God's rule over himself and over the nation. So Samuel then anoints not the strong big brothers, but the little one, the youngest and the smallest brother, David, in 1 Samuel 16. And when David is on the run from Saul, and as his men are urging him to kill Saul over and over again, David says that he will not lay a hand on God's anointed. He will not lay a hand on God's Messiah on the Christ. He has been anointed, David has, but so has Saul, and so he will trust that God is good and will provide in his own timing. He will not lay a hand on the Messiah, the anointed one. But lastly, prophets can be anointed. God told Elijah to anoint Elisha in order for Elisha to be set apart, to be designated with the prophetic ministry that Elijah had been formerly serving in. And so in all of these categories, in priests and kings and prophets in meaningful ways, God, people are uh, anointed so that they might represent God to the people and represent the people to God. With all three, God often holds the wider people accountable for the actions, for the lives, for the worships, for the worship of the anointed one. When the anointed one is worshiping God well, it goes well for the people. When the anointed one is rejecting God, it goes poorly for the people. They are mediators. So as has been said, priests priests mediate God's presence, kings mediate God's people, and prophets mediate God's purpose. And so rather than Jesus just being one of the many who has come before him, Peter is saying that Jesus is now actually set apart for something very specific. He is the anointed anointed one of God. He is to represent God to the people, and he is to represent the people to God. He is a mediator. He is the go-between of God's presence and his people and his purpose. And as we thought about in Luke 3 at Jesus' baptism, when the Spirit descends on Jesus and with water dripping all over his face, 
his baptism became an anointing ceremony of the Son on earth in whom the Father in heaven is pleased, the mediator, the set-apart one, the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ of God. And while it will become overwhelmingly clear that Peter does not understand the full meaning of what he is saying, the full meaning of what the Christ has come to do and how he will mediate, he understands here, Peter does, he understands here better than any other human who has spoken anything about Jesus so far in the Gospel of Luke. Say perhaps Zechariah or Mary. We've seen the demons twice make pretty clear confessions of Jesus' identity. But Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples, has gotten the prescription a little clearer. He just clicked on number two, and it became a little more clear on who he thinks and believes Jesus to be. Now, how did that happen? How does he see clearly? Well, in Matthew's version of this account, Matthew gives us more of Jesus' response to Peter after, he, after Peter says what he says. And he tells Peter that Peter is blessed by God because people do not come to that conclusion on their own. People do not come to understand and believe and see Jesus as the anointed Messiah, the Christ of God on their own, but only because of God who reveals these things to them. God is the one who is fitting and in clarifying and adjusting the right prescriptions so that Peter might see. It is a miraculous work of God to cause anyone to see, just as Jesus miraculously gives sight to the blind that they might see. But at a practical level, why is it that Peter is able to see more clearly than Herod could, than the crowds could? Well, up until this point, Herod had never even seen Jesus. He was curious about him, He had hoped that one day that Jesus would come into his courts, but Herod never went out to go find and see Jesus. He never really wanted to learn from him. He never cared to be healed or cleansed by him. Herod kept his his distance in indifference. And this indifference ultimately led to his rejection of Jesus in Luke 23. Now, the crowds are more interested than Herod. Many of them were healed, were cleansed by Jesus, but it was only Peter, speaking on behalf of of the disciples, that saw, that saw who Jesus is, saw who he was. The crowds, they come and go. They wanted to be near Jesus when they needed something, but they were not willing to follow him. But the disciples, they were with him. As they learned a new life from Jesus, they unlearned their old life. As they learned to depend more on the provision of Jesus, they unlearned in their own provision. As they learned to depend more on the wisdom of Jesus, they unlearned their own wisdom. As they learned of the power of Jesus, they simultaneously learned of their own weakness. And so it's clear, it is a miraculous blessing that God brings this confession to Peter and from Peter that brings this understanding and clarity, but we can also say that Peter understands Jesus because of his proximity to Jesus. Proximity brings understanding. And at the most essential level, a Christian is one who believes as Peter believes. Because of proximity to Jesus, because of clarity of vision, that a Christian can say and believe what Peter says, professes faith in who Jesus is, the set-apart one, who would mediate between God and man. And if this is not you, if this is not that you can say with full assurance, I believe you, Lord Jesus, when the Lord Jesus asks you, but who do you say that I am? If you don't have a great question, 
or a great answer to that, or with clarity, being able to, in faith, answer that question, do not stay like Herod. Do not stay curious, but keeping manageable distance. Do not stay like the crowds, only coming to Jesus when or if you need something. Come to learn from him. Throw your attention, your time, your energy in knowing Jesus as the Christ. And he will give you, year by year, clarifying vision. Number two. Uh, Number one. Number two, slowly but surely. As we've shared so many times from J.I. Packer, Packer runs with this, once wrote this. What were we made for? To know God. What aim should we have in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives to know God? What is the best thing in life? To know God. Not to keep manageable distance, but to draw closer that we might see him, that we might be near to him, that we might experience him. But he hasn't yet given his disciples, the full LASIK surgery. It's like he's just finally given, for the very first time, he's given them their like first pair of readers. They can see a little bit more clearly right up front, but they still can't see very far into the distance. They can't see what's over the horizon. And so, verse 21, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one. Now, we've seen Jesus tell others to keep quiet about his healing before, but this one feels a bit different. Jesus is so glad, so happy for this confession of Peter that he believes Jesus to be the anointed one of God. But it seems that Jesus doesn't want the disciples to go start proclaiming this out there to all the people and to all the crowds because he knows that even they, the disciples, don't know what they're talking about. Even they don't know what it means that Jesus is the Christ of God. It will become clear that they likely think that the anointed Messiah, the Christ of God, will once again come like David, the anointed Messiah, who will drive out Israel's enemies and restore the right worship of God. But Jesus tells them in verse 22, instead of that, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Now, if you're a Christian, if you're not a Christian, if you have some familiarity with the Bible, if you are overly familiar with the Bible, it does not matter. When we read a text like this, it doesn't come as that surprising. This is so naturally expected when we read the Bible that Jesus would say something like this. As Christians, this suffering that Jesus predicts is the very basis on which we build our entire existence, his suffering on the cross. The non-Christian world certainly knows of Jesus' death and his suffering. Verse 22 is not shocking to us at all. But for the disciples, what? As we go throughout the book of Luke, it will become increasingly and overwhelmingly clear that they both do not understand, and maybe they don't want to understand. They don't want to hear or believe what Jesus is telling them. That maybe they think that, maybe just Jesus is kind of sandbagging a little bit. He's preparing them for the worst if it doesn't actually go according to the plan. But this is the plan. He tells them that the Son of Man must suffer. It is Jesus' coming cross where he is most clearly the Christ. 
the anointed one, the mediating priest, king, and prophet, where he mediates God's presence, that through his own substitutionary death for sin, our priest welcomes sinners into the holy places of God through cleansing forgiveness, where he mediates God's people, that in his obedience as our representative king, he goes out to fight on our behalf. And in his death and then his glorious resurrection, he wins and he brings glorious victory to his people. And where he mediates God's purpose, that in his prophetic ministry, he commands repentance to come to his cross as the place of death that you might find life. And now it's to that theme that he immediately turns, that while indeed proximity leads to understanding, then understanding leads to service. Or put another way, that understanding Jesus leads to following Jesus. And so in verse 23, now thinking about following him, he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? Now this section here, is he's talking, he's just talking about wise investment. Jesus' teaching here is similar to the parable of the field of great treasure in Matthew 13. You know this parable where Jesus says that there's a man who finds a treasure in a field. Let's say he stumbles upon like $50 million of gold bars buried in a field. And he finds out that this field is for sale for like $300,000 cash. But this man doesn't have that cash on hand. So he goes home and he sells his house and he sells his car and he sells his TVs and his laptops and his furniture. And to an outside observer, that man is crazy. He's radical. He's making radical sacrifices in his life. But is he radical? Is he crazy? No, he's just wise. He's making good financial investments. So what if he goes a few days without a house or a car or a TV or a bed? He just bought a field for $300,000 cash that has $50 million of gold buried in it. That's just a wise investment. And Jesus is saying here the same thing, verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. So what if you deny yourself what you think is immediately important when it's really just an investment in something future and actually better? He's confronting what we assume is most true, what is most real, what is most life-giving. He is confronting this because we are sensory, we are material people, meaning we are a people of matter, of senses, of touch. It makes sense that we make decisions and investments. We pursue that which we can see and touch and physically experience now. Again, this makes sense. God made us as embodied humans who hear and see and touch and feel. We actually are who God has created us to be. Human existence is received existence. We cannot experience life apart from who we are physically. And yet, what our culture tells us more and more is that to live a truly human life, we must find whatever it is that in the moment gives you the highest level of physical happiness, that we must carve out a place of individual self-expressiveness to reach full or peak human actualization. The actualized self is an expressive self. 
meaning whatever in my life feels right is right. Whatever in my life I want to be right is right. Whatever I experience is the way of actual reality. And this is not just a worldview of those on like the extreme poles of society, maybe the strangest corners of social media or something. This is so baked into the makeup of our society that we cannot escape its effects. As Christians, we are so tempted to believe that my happiness depends on me becoming some better or idealized version of myself that experiences more, that experiences differently, that looks differently or feels differently sensory, that because I'm currently unhappy, something must be fundamentally wrong with me, or that the people in my life aren't affirming me as they ought to. And yet here, Jesus says that the way to true and abundant life is not through self-actualization, but through self-denial. Having just said that the Son of Man must suffer and die and rise again, he then hints at what that will mean. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Now, the disciples must have been thinking, take up my cross? He wants to, he wants me to like pick up a, an instrument of my execution, of my public and shameful execution? That's not what I signed up for. Just yesterday, we were feeding people, miraculously meeting people's needs. In the days before that, he sent us out to preach and to heal and to cast out demons. What in the world is he talking about? And why, if I am carrying my cross to the place of death, would I be following him? He, he is leading us to the place of our death? If they weren't thinking clearly they didn't have ears to hear or eyes to see, they must be like, Jesus is just walking out front like a shepherd, the shepherd, shepherd staff, and all the disciples are carrying crosses behind him. What in the world is Jesus doing? But because of the upside kingdom of heaven that we've been considering throughout Luke's gospel, up is down and down is up. That the elevator to glory is humility. That the pathway to power is weakness. And here, that the doorway to life is death, that our expectations would be sidestepped, that our hopes would not be in ourselves, that our faith would settle on a God who saves and not in a self who disappoints. This is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians 1. Paul writes this, he said, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord." The wisdom of God, the economy of heaven becomes so that those who are empty become filled, that sinners become righteous, and that the dead might live. And so again, if in this moment the disciples had ears to hear, if they heard that Jesus said that he must suffer and die and then rise again, and then they started thinking, wait a minute, why am I now carrying a cross and following him? Well, the answer must be because I am following him in his death. He must suffer and die, and I am going with him. 
And yet, I recently read this, the call to die is not to die for Christ, but with Christ. You ever thought about that? Jesus has not necessarily called you to die for him, but with him. We'll get there to the end, at the end of the book, but we might notice that Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane was willing to die for Jesus, to fight for Jesus. And yet later on that night, he was not willing to die with Jesus, even when a little girl was accusing him. The call to die is not to die for Christ, but with Christ. This truth makes all the difference. Christ does not need our death like we need his. Just as we thought about last week, that the church of Jesus Christ becomes united to him in his suffering and in his triumph. We are wrapped up both in his death, but also raised with him in his resurrection and then seated with him in the heavenly places. We get his victory. We get his life. We get his joy. We get his abundance. But all of this comes through death. You're suffering with him. When he says in verse 24, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. He is saying, when we sang earlier, hallelujah, praise the one who set me free. Set me free from what? Set me free from my own death, my own slavery to myself. He has urged us, invited us to die to that and to come alive in him. This is Paul. If you want to think more deeply about this whole theology, just read Romans 6, 7, 8. This is Paul's whole thing. The whole kit and caboodle of being a Christian is death to self that we might have life in Christ. But here's an important word that I don't think I've ever really paid much attention to before this week as I was studying. If you've been around the Bible very long, you likely are fairly familiar with what Jesus is teaching here, but I never really paid attention to a very important word in this text. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross. Take up his cross. I kind of just thought the sentence ended there. Take up his cross daily. That the Christian life is a life of daily death. That we might gain ultimate life the daily grace of God to provide for the needs of his people. He gives enough for today. He doesn't give tomorrow's grace today. Like manna in the wilderness, he does not give tomorrow's grace today. He will do that tomorrow when tomorrow's grace becomes today's grace. But we must also come to him again today, not relying on past grace, past experience of Jesus. That manna has spoiled. We need more today. We need the daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread today. We need to come to him to ask, to plead, to in faith know that he will provide what we need today. And that does mean our practical needs. It's good and right to pray for practical daily bread, the needs that we require today. But God is also faithful and kind and overwhelmingly generous to provide and to answer as we open our eyes in the morning, perhaps even before we've opened our eyes, but we are awake in our beds to ask the Lord to, Lord, help me to want what you want today. Help me to love what you love today. Help me to hate what you hate today. Lord, help me to deny my flesh today. 
Help me to, to, to die more and more to myself today. Help me to see and taste that you are good. Help me to choose joy. Help me to be an active preacher to my heart today rather than a passive listener. Lord, help me to want what you want. And he will do it. He will give the bread, the grace, the daily grace that you need today. Not tomorrow, but he'll do it again then too. But today, he will provide grace as we die to ourselves. And in all of these things, and becoming more self-controlled with our thoughts, more self-controlled with our words and with our bodies, and becoming more generous with our time and with our possessions, and becoming more concerned with the good of others rather than the comfort and security of ourselves, we are counterintuitively choosing joy. It's not radical. It's not crazy. It's just a wise investment to choose joy, both in this temporal life and certainly in, in the life to come. If God is the supreme fountainhead of all and of the deepest joy— not of dour and joyless morality, but of adventure and joy in life, then this is just solid investment advice. And yet, if Jesus is like a financial advisor coming to you just before, in the months prior to the 2008 housing market crisis, and he comes to you bringing warnings that things will get very bad for the short term, there is death. But if you invest rightly, there is reward and abundance on the other side. If he comes making those kinds of warnings and that kind of investment advice, there is a flip side to his call to listen. That for those who don't listen, for those who just keep buying up real estate in 2007 without a care to come, or to care, care for what's to come, just assuming that the wave of temporary wealth will continue forever, for those who refuse to listen, there is certain and impending loss. Verse 25, or what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, Jesus hasn't really spoken a ton of warning and judgment so far in Luke, but it's coming. There's a lot more coming. But if Jesus is the very top question on the flowchart of human existence, and if you deny him, if you say no to that first question on the flowchart of human existence, or as we thought about last week, if you remain in neutrality, that neutrality is actually rejection, then there is certain an impending loss and destruction. The wave of temporary wealth, the wave of self-worshipping happiness will not last forever. There's bankruptcy. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, was crucified to mediate us to God. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, was buried to mediate us from our death. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, was raised that we might rise with him. Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one, has ascended in bodily form that he might welcome us to seat us in bodily form. And to reject that, to reject him, is to remain in death. I've recently seen a, a 17th century register of English burial records. Stay with me. But at the top of all of these names of people and their cause of death, their place of death, and their date of death, on the top of that page, written in Latin, is this. 
He who dies before he dies will not die after he dies. You with me? He who dies to himself before he dies physically will not die spiritually and eternally after he dies physically. He who dies before he dies will not die after he dies. What hope? What hope? But of course, the flip side is that he who does not die before he dies will not live after he dies. There is only separation. There is only destruction. There is only loss. There is only bankruptcy. The Lord Jesus will come again in glory to save his beloved. And as we've already thought about, it is to that day that we long and hope for. It is to that day that the bickets would deny themselves, selling all that they have in what looks like to perhaps some of us in this room and perhaps definitely to their unbelieving neighbors, it looks crazy. It looks like radical, wild, crazy action and living. But they're just making a conscientious investment in joy. They're making a conscientious investment in their own lives and certainly in the lives of others that they might hear and might know Jesus. That they might taste and see him. That they might be brought from death to life. That they might, in and of them, their own selves, their own hopes, their own desires, know him more. Might experience more joy tomorrow and certainly 10 million years from now. This is the call of the kingdom of Jesus. It's not upside down. It is right side up. And at this moment in chapter 9, this moment becomes a real clarifier. Certainly in the identity of Jesus, he is the Christ of God. But now, for the first time, he is telling his disciples that his mission, his purpose, and then therefore his disciples, our mission, our purpose with him is a mission and a purpose of death that we might find life. This is going to come into further clarification, his identity anyway, and the coming transfiguration, which we'll finally return to in September. So put a bookmark in Luke 9. But let me suggest just for now that this moment that Jesus, uh, this moment of the transfiguration is likely what Jesus has in mind in verse 27, where he says that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all place the transfiguration immediately after this prediction from Jesus. But we can save that for September. For now, though, he is saying his is a ministry, his is a purpose of death, of life, of glory. That he died, he was buried, and he was raised. That he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And it is to that day that we long for, and it is to that day that we hope. Because it is to that day that he will finally swallow up death forever. Only life, only joy, only abundant life that we might live eternally in him. Amen? He will come again, and even so we pray. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray to that end right now. Lord Jesus, we as your people love to be your people. We love to be the subjects of your kingdom. We love to be the adopted sons and daughters brought into the family of God the Father. 
All of these things are possible because of who you are, the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the set-apart one, the mediator of God, that you mediate the holiness and the righteousness and the eternality of God to us, and that you you mediate us, our weakness, our sin, our brokenness, our shame, our humility to the eternality of God. That you, the God-man, have brought God near to us and that you bring us near to God. Help us to trust in this work on our behalf as our mediator. Help us to die more and more to our own desires, our own very small kingdoms, our very small desires, these cups of sand that we keep turning to to quench our thirst that only make us thirstier. Help us to die to these. Help us to see you clearly. We know that we will be like you when we see you. Help us to see more clearly. When we see you clearly, we will more easily, more in faith and more uh, energetically and excitedly turn to you, follow you, choose righteousness, choose joy, experience joy. So help us to see you clearly. Fix our vision, Lord, we pray. It's in the name of Jesus. Amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.